Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. In this month of February, we are considering the role of technology in promoting belonging. Having begun our exploration in the last episode with Dr. Marion Underwood from Purdue, today we pick it up with an intellectual hero of mine, Todd Rose. Among the things technology enables is personalization. How we schedule trips, order food, or even set the temperature on our mattresses can be customized to our personalized need and liking thanks to technology. No longer is the world one size fits all. Of course, the world of education has been slow to the personalization revolution in many regards, how teaching and learning occurs in school, how we deliver content, assess student understanding, and use time remain standardized, reflecting the needs and paces of a society long gone by. As many listeners know, at Parish, as part of our quest to reimagine a school experience that engages students consistently in learning from the very first grades to the time they graduate, we continue to explore ways for teaching to meet individual students where they are. In other words, to personalize the learning experience. So the writings and thinkings of Todd Rose have been highly influential on my own thinking. I've been fortunate over the last couple of years building the From My Angle podcast to talk with such intellectual heroes in my personal learning community, Julie Lifecott-Hames, Susan Pope, and Jeff Salingo, just to name a few. When reading Todd Rose's books, End of Average and Dark Horse, I thought about how cool it would be to get to speak with him about his ideas around what he calls the, quote, age of personalization. Especially as I lead a robust community, and I was set to focus on the theme of belonging, I wondered... How could we reconcile this movement to personalization that technology enables with the community connectivity we all crave, especially so here at Parish? Dr. Rose and I explore all of these ideas and more in this episode. In addition to being an author, Todd has been the director of the Mind, Brain, and Education program at Harvard Graduate School of Education, where he led the Laboratory of the Science of Individuality. More recently, Todd has shifted his focus to populace, a nonprofit dedicated to transforming how we learn, work, and live so that all people have the opportunity to live a fulfilling life. Enjoy this conversation with Todd Rose. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. I'm honored today to have author and professor Todd Rose with us from, I'm sure, chilly Boston, Massachusetts this morning. Todd, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, any any snow on the ground up there yet? You know, we we had a good snowstorm. It just melted, but we've got more coming. So <laughs> it's on. It, its, is cold. it is cold. It's on its way. Well, Todd is an author of two books: End of Average uh, and Dark Horse. Dark Horse, which I read uh, just this past summer. End of Average a couple of years ago. He's also a professor uh, at Harvard, and uh, I think is uh, pushing uh, those of us in the education field. Uh, in really compelling and provocative ways. And I'm so glad that he's here today to tell us a little bit about his work and the science of individuality. So Todd, I'll allow you to introduce yourself. Your personal biography is, uh, I think, uh, an important context to the work that you're presently doing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how you worked your way from uh, what I think we can honestly say was uh, not a very successful high school student to a professor at at Harvard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, yeah, probably like most people, the professional work that you do ends up being at least informed by your own experiences in, in some ways. And for me, yeah, like I'm a professor now, uh, but I uh, actually did have a really tough go of school to begin with. And it culminated in me dropping out um, uh, as a in high school 
with a 0.9 GPA, it, it just really didn't work. And, you know, I have some responsibility for that as well, right? It just wasn't a very good fit. Um, and I ended up uh, the same month that I got, I say dropped out, but they told me I couldn't graduate and I had to leave. So <laughs> it, it just feels better when it's like, uh, we agreed mutually that, you know, it wasn't working. But um, uh, my girlfriend at the time found out she was pregnant and uh, she's still my wife today. So our 25th anniversary is coming up here in a couple of weeks. But oh, um, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. No, it's uh, probably the best mistake I ever made, right? But, um, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so we, we, you know, ended up starting our lives that way where no high school diploma. Uh, I ended up working like a bunch of minimum wage jobs for a couple of years. We ended up at, by the, two years in, we had two kids, you know, we ended up having to be on welfare. It just wasn't working. And, and I, I knew something had to change, but I didn't really know what to do. And um, my, my dad was the first high school graduate in our family. And when I was in middle school, he was a mechanic and he came home one day and said, look, I think there's something more for me. And I think I need to go to college and nobody in our family had ever gone to college. So that was a really weird thing. But I watched him become a mechanical engineer. Uh, I watched that the effect of education changed him as a person, but also changed our life circumstances. Um, we were pretty uh, working class. We made ourselves sort of solidly middle class. Um, and so I felt like, well, that seems like a path. And so I got my GED and I um, enrolled in night classes at a local uh, university at Weber State University. Um, and yeah, this is like that slow process of realizing that actually uh, I was a pretty decent student if I understood, like there were just things I had to do to make it work. Um, and as I figured that out, I ended up graduating uh, five, five years later as like the student of the year at the university and then went to Harvard for my doctorate where I ended up staying on as a faculty member after. So um, when you were coming up through your education, this notion of the science of individuality and what you're ultimately have been doing in the uh, mind-brain uh, education uh, at Graduate School of Education at Harvard, like that was not a field. So no. tell us a tell us uh, what this science of individuality is and, and uh, again, uh, kind of informed by your past story, uh, where you've been focusing your research and your writing. Yeah, that's a great question. Because so um, in, in a lot of ways, I think to the sort of, to a normal listener, it'll be surprising that this has to be a breakthrough, which is basically for, you know, the last 100, 120 years, the way we've done science has been to like get groups of people, uh, you know, bring them in, you test them as individuals, but then we use statistics to like average everyone together and we actually study populations, right? Which has some merit, right? If you're a sociologist, that's exactly what you wanna study. But we've been doing that even as psychologists or neuroscientists, you know, when, we, when we're trying to understand, say, an individual learner, I think people will be surprised to realize most research has been done on the average learner. And the assumption was that, like, it's not perfect, but it probably applies to most people, right? Um, what's been interesting is over the last 20 years, as we've gotten access to bigger data sets, right? Um, so I was trained in neuroscience originally, you know, we can now, we, we can scan individual people's brains. We don't have to group everyone together. We were able to do that in a lot of different places in digital environments for learning. You could actually like see learning happening at an individual level. And what we found was that when you actually look at individuals, it turns out that these averages that we'd been using in research 
quite often really didn't apply to very many people at all, sometimes literally nobody. And so what we found was that you could actually build a science studying individuals first and then sort of grouping from there, like building up from there. So most people would be familiar with like the effects of this new science um, in the field of medicine. So almost all major breakthroughs in like cancer research and treatment have come from this new approach, right? There's no point in studying average cancer. We need to know you and we need to know how, you, you know, you're, there's a unique aspect to it that we have to understand if we're going to treat you effectively. Um, the other areas where it's made massive breakthroughs is in the field of nutrition. So um, there, there's a lot of companies now that are building on it where like you take something like the glycemic index, right? For controlling blood sugar. Uh, it turns out that that glycemic index is all based on averages and it actually doesn't apply to anybody. Like it doesn't hold for anybody like completely. And so what we're able to do now, and I, and I actually use these apps. It's pretty fantastic is I can say, I know exactly how say a potato will elevate my blood sugar. And it doesn't really matter if it doesn't affect other people the same way. Right. Um, and so in almost every field where we've done this, this new science of individuality is the way that we do science now. And you see this uh, in commercial space too, right? Like you go to Amazon and Amazon knows you quite well, right? Like, and it's like pretty shocking how, how accurate their predictions are about the things you might like. So I was a part of that science. Um, and to me, it felt pretty obvious that these insights had bigger implications, right? Like, they had implications for the way we think about our kids in terms of as students, right? As what their potential is, how we develop it. Uh, and I thought it had broader implications. And I, and for me, it was frustrating to see that these insights were grabbed on in medicine and nutrition and commerce. And yet are in education, despite, look, I think that most teachers, I think most administrators deeply care about the personal aspects of developing kids but we have to acknowledge that we're still in a system that was not built for that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I felt like there were big implications to these insights and that we needed to do a better job getting to the public and actually having this conversation rather than just making it an academic argument. Yeah. So your, your first book end of average really gets into that element of uh, how we derive the average and, and uh, what it means uh, truly in the, in the present world to, uh, to not just be better than, the next guy, right? But to really be truly an individual. But in Dark Horse, you really start to pick apart this age of standardization and this age of personalization. So explain to us, you know, how, how this, uh, the features of the age of standardization that existed, especially in the 19th and 20th century, that really sort of codified this whole notion of the average, right? So what were some of the features of that, not just in education, but in general, like, where do we trace it? Yeah, so it, it you know, the idea of it goes all the way back to a, a Belgian astronomer named Adolf Ketelet, but like, it's kind of bizarre. He, he's an astronomer and like in astronomy, um, you know, this is in the early 1800s, like any one person's observation of like a star is going to have some error, right? How did I measure it? How did you measure it? And no one could figure out like, what's the right measurement. And they used to do things like, well, this person's more uh, esteemed. So his measurement will be better than her measurement. It's like, well, turned out not really to be true. What they found was that as long as um, it was just kind of random, right, errors, like if you just took everybody's observations, like 10 different astronomers and averaged it together, the average observation tended to be more correct, right? Because it was just random error. So Ketelet actually goes, well, wait a minute. For the first time ever, uh, countries were collecting dem uh, 
demographic data through census and stuff like that. And he was like, well, wait a minute. What if you could apply that same idea? If the average is true in astronomy, maybe it's true in, with human beings. And so he starts collecting data on like, first group was on Scottish soldiers and they're like, their chest sizes. Yep. And he's like, look, there's a bell curve. And like, <laughs> and so he takes this leap and he goes, not only would this be useful, he thinks the average is actually ideal. Like it is actually like a platonic, this is perfection. This is what God or nature was striving for. And the rest of us are just kind of errors off of that. And people were like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Like, why would this be true? But, um, but what happened was, weirdly, is it allowed uh, insurance, right? So for the first time, you realize, wait a minute. If we have a way to think about the population, we can amateurize risk across to everyone. So it, it, it started being used by insurance companies, and that kind of seeped into the public. But it really is Frederick Taylor, I mean, Frederick Taylor then really came along as the uh, in industry to standardize, and then Horace Mann... And from uh, from we educators yeah. fell fell into the fell into the allure of this same of this same element of yeah. thinking. And there's really two two aspects to it that I think allowed it to take off. The first is that in the industrial age, there really probably wasn't a way to get scale without standardization, right? Like it it wasn't could we give every kid a great education, um, or you know not. It was like either we give everyone the same one or probably can't afford to give anybody anything except for the really wealthy people can get the private solution. But the, the problem is, is that like most of this thinking around standardization actually comes from people who really didn't trust the broader public, didn't really see them as capable and really saw it as more about controlling other people, right? So Frederick Taylor creates scientific management as a way to run con companies and he invents the idea of a manager, right? He says, look, there are people who just, their job is to do the work we tell them to do. And then there's like the smarter people who get to think and plan. And, you know, he really had visions and, and so did his followers of a controlled economy, right? Of like the smart elites running everything and the rest of us just shutting up and like doing what we're told. And honestly, like, I think most of the problems in our society today are coming from the fact that the general public is fed up with that, right? That this idea that there's a select group of people who are smarter than the rest of us who can make better decisions has just been proven to be false. So, yep. the, you know, that those confluence of those two factors lead us to a, an age of standardization where you as an individual really don't matter. I know it sounds harsh, but it's like, it really is. Everything is just about average effects and, you know, uh, and a few people controlling things. If you, you know, in part because of the frustration of the public, but also because we have our technologies now and access to bigger data, we've suddenly been able to do something different, right? So you live in a world right now where most of our institutions are still industrialized and they're hierarchical and they are standardized. But the public, you and I, we engage in the world in a very networked way where we're increasingly expecting that our voices are heard and that our individuality is taken seriously, right? And we expect that in commerce now, we increasingly expect it in medicine um, and I think that that clash is what's causing a lot of the frustration. But in this age of personalization, the, the default assumption is that your individuality matters and that it is the system's responsibility to at least meet you halfway there, right? And um, now there'll be, we can talk about it. There's problems with that too, but I think that there's really no going back. Like you are never going back to the age of buying products where the company, where Amazon doesn't know anything about you, right? Like it's like, um, and I think we'll just see this more and more. I think, you know, the, the future of, say, clothing is now 
three-dimensional body scans and real-time creation of stuff that actually fits you at a price. Yeah, custom tailors. Yeah. There's custom tailors all over all over the uh, app, app world and, and internet world. Yeah, but the sad thing is, of course, is this system of standardization to take back from Cadillac through Frederick Taylor into Horace Mann in education. You know, you're talking about it's loosening in all these other industries, medicine, nutrition, uh, uh, finance, fitness, right? You can customize your mattress, but you cannot customize your education, right? Like, so this, this notion of, of, of the uh, way that Horace Mann interpreted standardization to mean uh, segmented classes, rote use of time, production of the student to fulfill and, and uh, the, the, the purposes of the industrial model that Taylor had developed, right? Um, those have not really loosened in majority of places, like school to a great degree in, uh, you know, 2020, is not too dissimilar from what you might have seen in 1950 or 1960 or what have you in many places. And so I think this is the curiosity for all of us. What would you say has been the biggest thing to usher in this age of personalization? Is it technology, brain MRIs, and uh, just uh, the, you know, the digital, the digital network that is, that is allowed that? Or yeah, I, this I, frustration I, that you've mentioned? Yeah, look, I think that basically it's both, but like you could be frustrated by something, but if there's no way to satisfy it, we, you know what I mean? Like it, it, if it turns out later on, we realize we all can fly if we have the right stuff, we'd be like, wow, that's cool. We want that. But like, we don't know that's true now. So it doesn't feel that bad to us. Like, I think everyone's always realized that like you were giving something up to a standardized system and you didn't really like it, but it felt like there was no other option. And the our digital technologies combined with our better ability to know individuals now has clearly shown that we can do this right <clears throat> that you know you you look at even in in the application to medicine uh colon cancer which is the second most lethal and diagnosed cancer in the world um it, it, we used to have an average based model for that where we thought it covered most people it turns out now that it only accounts for seven percent of can colon cancers so everybody else was basically sacrificed on the altar of averages, right? They're like, Oh, sorry, it's an aggressive cancer. You died. But now we know there's three different pathways um, that it progresses and our ability to detect it early and to save people's lives has just grown exponentially. So I feel like as the public had this frustration, but as they start to see it because of our technologies and know-how start to be able to do something different in other areas of life, that expectation is just growing and growing. Um, the, the, the more interesting question is, why has education been almost the last industry to be really, truly willing to do this? And I, I have some opinions on that, but it's, it's so, 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 do, so do I after after 30 years and, and uh, 10 plus, you know, leading leading the school, which fortunately, I think is uh, has really embraced the, uh, the the opportunity and the challenge to to do that. But the, the long and the short of what what you're talking about, and you can go to end of average and read it, I commend it to you is that, you know, people are jagged. And the context in which they learn things matters and varies, right? Yet, when you walk into most school environments, right, it doesn't honor the jaggedness of people and it doesn't change the context in which they uh, consume information and in which they demonstrate their mastery or understanding of it, right? So these are just, I think, two really uh, key elements of how the age of standardization has, has held hold in education. But really what's compelling to me about um, Dark Horse is like at a much like higher aspirational level of how we live our life, right? Like, because you talk about this notion of the age of standardization really having the outcome of success, right? And, and then 
this age of personalization is much more about your authentic self and like finding this true level of fulfillment. I mean, Gallup tells us the data is, is decades old. Gallup tells us, you know, 68% of people are showing up at work every day, disengaged and, and flat and unfulfilled. Right. And I trace that back to an education system that to a great degree after seventh grade is doing the same thing to its students. It was and, basically and the just ripping. Too, right? The data is yeah. too. Majority of it, students are disengaged. Yeah, like it's the pathway, right? So talk to us a little bit about this, this idea of the difference between fulfillment and success as you talk about these dark horses, these individuals who've really sort of broken away from the one right path that you described to get to this quote-unquote uh, level of success, but have pursued a life of authenticity toward fulfillment rather than success. What does that, yeah. what does that mean? So, so yeah, if you think about part of the, the most insidious aspect of standardization is it's one thing to standardize a process, which I still think can be, have huge downsides. But what we did was we literally standardized what success is, right? And like it's yeah. in, in the industrial age, it's completely comparative, right? Like it is really about climbing a ladder, getting to the highest level. We're all fighting for the same thing. Um, it's not enough to go to college. You got to go to the best college, whatever that means. And you've got to, you know, um, and it's like wealth, status, power. And again, it's, it's comparative, right? It's not just about uh, actual accomplishment. Um, and, you know, you can see that and take something like the SAT. I don't think most people realize it's like outside of education. It's bell curved. It like guarantees that it, it, it was never designed to measure what your kids know. It literally is designed with questions to rank kids against each other, right? So it's really bizarre. It's like, we don't care what you do or know. We just want to know how you compare to someone else on some arbitrary measure. On so, questions based on your context of where you live and how you're raised, yeah. right, can, can completely disadvantage you. Yeah. And, and so, you're, you know, you've got this system where we're all told, chase this success based on someone else's definition. And then the, the sort of promise is you'll be happy on the back end, right? It'll all work out. And the problem is, is like, you've seen it now, like after enough generations of us buying into that promise, we know it's not true. And like, you just have to look around and say, how many people are actually successful by the, by the system standards and are yet completely miserable. Like, miserable, it just, right. and it boggles our mind, right? When I see like a, a professional athlete who's complaining, I'm like, are you kidding me? You get like millions of yeah. dollars to play. <laughs> like, but, but. Well, uh, yeah, and Sean Aker and, you know, who's been right. up on your very campus, right. Who's done measurements of kids who've uh, quote unquote reached the pinnacle. Of, yeah. of education success at Harvard, who as freshmen are completely upside down with with anxiety and and uh, and, and a sense of uh, ennui. Like, yeah. what what have I what have I run this race for? Right. Exactly. Um, and, and and the thing is, is that that um, you know what? So what I was interested in is like, well, what um, like what what ha what's changing? Like, I actually got to dark horses in this really like like serendipitous way, which was. In end of average, I had studied companies that I thought had done a good job dealing with individuality. And when when I got to know the companies, I had met a lot of individuals in those companies who were doing really well, but had very um, non-traditional backgrounds. And, and I, I didn't have time to dive into it then, but it was curious to me, like, how did they get there, right? So I realized that that work had never been done. And so I started this project with my colleague and we just started, uh, we literally interviewed these dark horses, people who are successful that nobody saw coming from as many industries as we could find. And just, I, I had no idea what to expect. I was just like, how did they do it? Right. Um, and I actually went in thinking it was like 
they probably have like a certain personality like uh, Richard Branson, you know, kind of buck the system. Um, or, you know, there'd be some trick about how they get good at the, I don't know, like, but it really quickly, they always wanted to talk about how they figured out who they were and like what mattered to them. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. And some of them, you know, talk about fulfillment directly or purpose and meaning. And I really didn't want that to be the answer because that felt soft, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with like fulfillment, right? Um, but as they keep bringing it up, so we started digging in saying, okay, well, hold on. Like, is it just that like, this is after the fact, you're like talking about it this way, but it was very clear that what they had in common was that very early on, they, they realized that success for them meant living a life of authenticity about achieving things for sure but it had to align to who they were and what what they valued and they prioritize that over other people's definitions now in an age of standardization where we're all following the exact same path uh it, it sort of means that it's almost guaranteed that if you're going to be true to yourself you're going to have to get off that path a little bit and so what was fascinating is to learn from these dark horses that there's a handful of things that they knew that allowed that to be a reliable path to excellence right? Rather than follow your bliss off a cliff, right? And so what's been fascinating is to see this shift from a, a very standardized view of success to a far more personal view of success and seeing from people who have made it work, what we can learn from that. Now, I will say just to, just to keep rambling, right? But um, at my think tank Populous, uh, we just published um, just a couple of months ago with Gallup, uh, the first ever largest study of how Americans view success, not just dark horses, but how are, how, how are most of us thinking about the lives we want to live? Blow your mind cool. Like the vast majority of the American public has moved on from this standardized view. They want fulfillment. They want meaning and purpose. They prioritize things like character and relationships and education, right? They don't want to play the keeping up with the Joneses. But what's so fascinating is they are completely convinced that everybody else still does want that right like and so we're stuck in this world where most of us don't but we think everybody does and so nothing really changes yeah there wouldn't have been a varsity blues scandal if that were really the case right like at the end of the day everybody is willing to capitulate all those things you just mentioned character values a sense of authenticity and personal path to make sure that their child gets into you know one of the 50, one of the 20 colleges that accept fewer than 50% of their applicants. Like that's, that's sort of what it's been distilled to. And as I, as I talk about in this community and on this podcast frequently, certainly around this theme of belonging, you know, finding, finding your fit in the world uh, is more important than meeting certain metrics of success. And then once you find your fit, oftentimes you'll be surprised at how some of the metrics commonly associated with success in the standardized world actually come your way, right? <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive. In fact, I would even say if, if your goal was to simply win based on the old standards, I still think actually finding your fit and being able to do this is the most reliable path. Because back to what you said earlier, like this engagement issue, right? I think it is probably the least controversial thing I'll say today that having a student that is more engaged is better than less engaged. Having an employee that is more engaged is better than less engaged. We know that engagement brings with it higher productivity, greater creativity, right? These things. And so when you look at the numbers of like the majority of Americans are disengaged in their work, a majority of students are disengaged in school, that should be the, the, the alarm bell going off that, boy, we are losing a lot as a society. And there's really no 
better, more reliable path to deep engagement than knowing who you are and being able to make choices based on that so that you're putting yourself in situations where, you know, by and large, you're doing things that matter to you. Yeah. Um, and imagine what happens as we start to rethink a lot of our institutions that enable more and more people to live fulfilling lives and make greater contributions. I mean, I think we have the chance to usher in an incredible mutually beneficial society, the likes of which we haven't seen before. So since 2014 or so, really, since I got here in 2010, but since 2014, named Reimagine, we've really been trying to uh, break apart the strictures of standardization. We're a young school. We just added a middle and upper school in 2003. So it's not as if we've been around for 100 years. And still, school's concept is school's concept. So we have four driving premises. Students should have more voice and choice in their work. The work should be meaningful and authentic, right? The work uh, should build enduring habits of mind, like skills that persist beyond just um, you, you know, swallowing, swallowing down uh, the content and kids should be able to move when they've mastered material. So there should be more flexible moving of kids. Like these are basically the four organizing premises. And we've been trying to um, unpack how we use time, how we structure adult work. So all of this is to say we've, we've um, definitely encountered people scratching their heads, I think, and looking at us as we piloted this and tried it. We've made mistakes. We've done some things well. We're making incremental progress. But at the same time, we're an Episcopal school with Daily Chapel, and community really matters here. So as schools like ours grapple with trying to take 1,150 learners across, you know, pre-K through 12 uh, spectrum on two campuses, like as we try to personalize that experience more for those learners here, how do we reconcile the similar need for com community and a, and a, and a sense of, um, sort of common experience? How, how, how are you thinking about that? So two things. One, I love the organizing principles. Like I think that, um, you know, basically my view of personalization is basically what you just named, right? Like, and, and it's funny, it's, it's not that controversial, right? Like mastery over fixed time and, and grades, like that, that's like, we do that, by the way, we don't, we do that for almost every other thing where it matters, right? Like every elite medical school is shifting toward mastery learning. We don't care that like a doctor sat in a class for a fixed amount of time and then we gave him a ranked grade. No, I just want to know, do you know what you're doing? Right? Like, um, so those are things, I think those are really great. And I love that, like, sometimes we decorate personalization with a thousand different little things. And you're like, look, there's lots of ways that it can work. Let's find some organizing principles. Um, and, but this point about community and belonging, I think is really critical because like, personalization, our ability to understand your individuality and build systems that are responsive to it, that is actually value neutral, right? Like it's, it's like any science, right? You think about like uh, our ability to split the atom. Well, is that good or bad? Well, it depends on what you do with it, right? Like if we have alternative energy and we can feel cool, if you, you know, make it a mass destruction weapon, yeah, we'll see. But like the idea is that like our ability to know you, whether that's good or bad depends on how it's used. So you could imagine that we deploy these insights and these technologies in ways that isolate kids, right? That we put them in front of a computer, that it's about adaptive, you know, testing, it's about adaptive learning, but it's really like more isolating, right? Um, you could also imagine that we use this knowledge to further rank and sort kids, right? We just have a better, more fine-grained way to know which kids are talented and which kids aren't, right? The alternative to that is to say, wait a minute, the underlying assumptions about human potential are wrong, that every kid has something to offer and that our job is to actually like help unlock that and help them be contributing members of society. And 
if we accept that, then look, we are social creatures. We depend on each other. No individual can ever accomplish much by themselves. And what we're starving for right now is more belonging. I mean, this is a huge crisis in our society, right? Now, what's interesting to me is that um, it, it seems obvious to me that what real belonging means is my ability to show up as, as I am, right? And right. be understood for who I am. It doesn't mean accept everything I ever want to do, right? I mean, part of the call, especially of, uh, in faith, is to actually elevate us to a, a higher plane, right? So it, it's not let kids do whatever they want, right? It is, but it is a recognition that who they are as an individual, you know, their God-given talents, their limitations matter, right? And um, I can't think of, of a more important foundation for true belonging and true community than to be seen for who I really am. Mm -hmm. And the, what I think is powerful is if, if we're teaching kids to know themselves as individuals, we're teaching them to see each other as individuals, right? With dignity and worth. Um, and part of this is like, when I see what, what our institutions, especially education need to do, they need to teach kids self-control. Like, am I going to be able to have, a control over my life, can I, of my own learning, can I take responsibility for my choices? But, but like, I see it as, hey, look, the new social compact is, we're gonna equip you to live a fulfilling life, but you have an obligation to contribute, right? It, it's not enough to take that and then go down some rabbit hole of selfishness, but like, how do you use your talents to, to improve the lives of other people? And I don't just mean that as charity, right? I think fantastic businesses add a lot of value, right? Um, so I think that like we have, as the faster we shift the question from should we go to personalization because it's going to happen whether you want it to or not to what are we going to do with this, right? What, what, what kind of kids do we want to develop, right? What kind of character do we want them to have? What, how do they want them to see their obligations to each other? Then we'll know how to make better use of these things. So for me, I love the fact, I actually think um, like an Episcopal school, these kind of things that at bottom have these commitments to the dignity of every individual while also having a broader claim to the purpose of education beyond just content preparation, right? There's a moral aspect to this that really matters. I think folks like you are the incubators of these new models of what, what can be the future of public education. Yeah, and I and I say I say we we want to be an independent school. That's a both and school. You know, it's it's certainly a, it's certainly a place where the academics is is robust, but this element of, of personalized uh, and, and personal development is 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 a feature of it as well. So Dark Horse really unpacks the stories of these individuals, and you go into you know, these elements of micro motives, more trial and error, and personal choice, and flexible uh, conceptions of time. I mean, I think as a parent and as an educator. You know, they are really, really provocative, compelling ideas. At the end of though, you get to this whole idea of happiness. You know, most parents I talk to, I mean, it's not really success. Um, and it's not even sometimes goodness that they aspire for for their kids. It seems today they want to be happy. And you give these definitions or you sort of explore this at the end of your book. And uh, in fact, quote George Mason, the founding father who talked about happiness you know, being this notion where you fit your character and your talents and your abilities, just those things you were talking about, right, into a condition or a circumstance in the, in the world that's needed. And I can't think of a better outcome for, you know, my three boys or the 1150 kids who I proxy parent here is like to get out into the world and find that fit where their gifts and skills and attributes are, as you've talked about, known, 
but then applied in service to a larger good. And that's really your argument for why this is so important, because I think you see this moral uh, sort of societal lift. If everyone is in a place of personal fulfillment, that we all get better because everybody's pouring back into the common good. It's not a selfish conception. It's actually a, it's, it's actually a utilitarian yeah. uh, outcome, right? At the end of the day, if we get everybody there. What I loved is, you know, being able to dig into the, the origins of the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson. It was so fascinating that he, he, you know, he, he was a building on the enlightenment, obviously, um, and looking at like individual dignity and things like self-government that really had only been tried a few times before and never really succeeded. But when he makes the claim of like, what are these inalienable rights that matter so much? He, like the enlightenment scholars, John Locke said it was life, liberty, and property, right? And he changes property into life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And, you know, you could imagine that that was some rhetorical flourish. He kind of got away from it, like, okay, whatever. But like, it was so purposeful. And it was the only part of the declaration where nobody on the committee, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, or the bigger committee ever said that shouldn't be there. Everything else besides, you know, everything else was argued over. Everyone agreed that it was critical that individuals had the right to pursue happiness as they understood it. What was powerful to me is nowadays happiness has taken on this almost like fleeting emotional kind of sense for it. That's not what it meant there. Like it's soft. Yeah. It's soft and yeah. Happiness. You can't, you can't, you you know, you can't live on happiness alone. Right. Yeah. And, and, and and Jefferson was really trying to figure out, it wasn't an individual thing. He was, he was asking the question about what would be needed for a diverse democracy to hold? How would we hold together if we don't have a king, we don't have bloodlines? And his view is that it would only be by guaranteeing and supporting people in pursuing the lives that they want to live, uh, that it would ever work. And his view is that like the kind of happiness that he's talking about, this fulfillment as we would call it today, it is so enlarging, right? It's not selfish. To me, it's like when you read a great book, the first thing you want to do or, or, or see a great movie is tell someone you care about. You want them to, to experience it too, right? You don't right. want to hoard it to yourself. So his view is that if we did that, we would be able to create a society where individuals felt like they belonged, that they had a, a, a commitment to each other, that they wanted other people to have the same experiences. And I, I still think that holds. It was just hard back then. You know, we were starting a country where half the people didn't have the right to vote, you know, a, a big chunk of them were literally in chains, right? It probably wasn't the, you know, it's going to be hard to, to really make good on these full promises. What I see today, though, is that like all the disruptions that our technologies and our data systems and other things have brought in front of us and, and all the frustrations we have with the way our society is right now. Look, we're at a fork in the road. It can go the way of like, we can tear this whole thing down and, and, and it's not going to be pretty, right? But if we realize that this is the seed of something better that if we really get back to first principles about the respect for the dignity and worth of every individual about our commitment to individuals and community, we can use these technologies and, and, and our data and our know-how to build the kind of society that our founding fathers actually dreamed of. Yeah. Where everybody's really, really locked in. And you, I think you have an excellent curriculum opportunity. If you can really help train uh, educators like me to work with kids to discover their micro motives, like that's a big piece of your book. And I really, I spent a lot of time trying to, you know, drill down beyond what I've done through tools like strength finders to move like past strength finders to my micro motives, 
But I think you've got a real opportunity to help schools um, to do this work. And so it'd be interesting to see where your work takes you in the future. But as we conclude, I mean, there's a line in your book where um, you, you talk about this notion, the importance of ignore, dark horses ignore the destination, right? Because they're, they're busy exploring their micromotives and taking time, as David Epstein talks about in range, to really, you know, really um, sort of experiment in different spaces, right? It helps define who they are and it helps them find that sense of fit or connection. So you should ignore the destination you write because it's great for institutions, but catastrophic for fulfillment is such a powerful line. So uh, in closing for parents, like that's an almost an impossible, it seems task, right? Like, what do you mean? Don't think about college. Don't think about this particular college. Don't think about this particular line of work at this particular company living in this particular neighborhood with this family construct. Do you have any advice as a parent yourself, uh, as an educator, as a researcher on how to help um, us uh, work with our kids, students yeah. and, and our own kids alike on ignoring the destination? Sure, yeah, like, so look, when I say ignore the destination, you know, it doesn't mean don't set goals, right? Goals are important, um, but goals to be useful are specific, they're measurable, they're actionable, right? They're timely, like, like what we tend to do because our system told us like, hey, there's only a certain number of paths to like a life of comfort or whatever success. You better start figuring that out soon. So you see kids in high school, what are you going to be when you grow up? That's like literally the dumbest question we could ask kids. Like why in the world, why would they know? Why, like, why would a, a, a 12, 13 year old have to say, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer. Like, like maybe, right? Like, but the, the problem is, is that what we need them to be doing is, is figuring out who they are, learning how to make choices that, that are there in front of them, right? Like, because there's not one path to fulfillment, right? Any individual, there's a lot of ways that you can live a rich, meaningful, purposeful life. Probably the fastest way to sabotage that is to decide in advance that 10, 20 years from now, this is what I'm going to be doing. Because yeah. like, to me, you've got a series of choices every single day that you live right? And some of them are more fulfilling than others. Some of them advance you in ways that are so, like, you very well may end up being a lawyer, right? But you could also end up doing a whole bunch of other things. So uh, the reason I think ignoring the destination is so important is because it takes, it takes your eye off of the ball, right? It takes your eye off of you're on autopilot, you're thinking, that's fine. And then you get to college, and you're in pre law, and then you're like, I hate this. And you're like, well, yeah, like, now you have to figure out, you know, and think about how many kids in college this happens to where you're like, you finally have a chance to start to figure out who you are. And you're like, I don't want to do what I thought I wanted to do. That's an expensive time to figure that out. For so, sure. Exactly. So from a parent standpoint, I think the biggest thing is that like, there, there's two things that I think are really helpful because as parents, I'm like, I have two, I have two sons and it's very hard when it's them, right? It's much easier when you talk about other people's kids, right? But I have my own kids and trying to figure this out. It, it's hard. Uh, but when you let go of this old system where you're like, but at least I knew how to tell whether my kids were making progress, right? Like in the old system, there's sort of two things that I look for that I think are like really powerful from a parent standpoint. So especially when your kids are younger, the single most important thing you can do for them is cultivate the habit of helping them understand their own motives, right? And, and the easiest thing in the world that everybody that's listening could do this tomorrow is, you know, your kids come home from school, you know, how was your day, whatever. I want to know what are the things that you are most interested in right now and why the why is everything, right? So 
the example for me, like I love football, right? Absolutely love football. But so I can say I'm passionate about football, but actually if you ask the why, is it um, because I like team sports? Is it like I like competition? Do I, I like playing it outdoor, whatever? There's a whole bunch of reasons why you and I could both like football. You know what I mean? And like what really matters is that I understand the underlying motive because if football is no longer an option to me, I know how to make the next choice, right? So doing this and modeling it for your kids is phenomenally important. So they're in the habit of really understanding what motivates them. When your kid is older, let's say uh, like high school age or, or, or even beyond that, one of the things that's really, really tricky is to, how do you know when what your kid is doing is actually a path of fulfillment or them just being a flake, right? Is this just like a dead end, right? And like those, are, there's, those certainly exist, right? Um, and it's really hard. So what, probably the most reliable thing that I can tell parents that to know whether the path they're on makes sense and it'll be a great learning opportunity if it's not like profoundly fulfilling, but it's, it's good, is this. Are they taking responsibility for their choices, right? So there was literally not a single dark horse who, that we talked to that ever expected somebody else to foot the bill for their fulfillment, right? They were willing to sacrifice. They were willing to do what it took to be able to pursue the life they wanted. For me, you know, let, let's use the, the, the sort of silly example of like your kid wants to be an, an actor and she moves to Hollywood to p- pursue this dream. If she's living with seven roommates and bussing tables, that's actually a really good sign, right? It means, I mean, this is something she cares about and is willing to sacrifice for. It doesn't mean she'll be the next superstar, movie star, but like it does mean that this is a decent path for her. If she's saying, hey, dad, I need a car. Uh, could you buy me a car? Hey, could you pay my rent? Not so much, right? Because if you think about it, there are the number of things that I'd be willing to do if somebody else is paying for it, it's pretty wide. <laughs> like, but if I have to foot the bill, if I have to make the sacrifice, those things shrink in a hurry. So looking to make sure that your, your children are being willing to take responsibility for their choices is a really good sign that they're on the right path. Yeah, I think those are great. Those are great examples. I have a tw- my oldest is uh, senior year of college, twenty twenty one, almost twenty two, and so where I've changed my language with him is um, not what what's your next job going to be or what do you want to do. It's what experiences you, what experiences you are you seeking. Like what experience do you feel you need now. And I think for him, for example, it may lead to some time uh, next fall doing some global travel, right? Because that's a piece of experience that he I think he's really pining to have with our present. Um, returning students here who come back as as graduates i've gotten like i'll ask what your major is but i've really gotten more to questions like what else are you involved with because we know so much of the learning that happens in college campuses susan bloom and others are telling us happens outside the classroom sort of the learning in the wild as she refers to it so like what else are you involving yourself in what are you finding interesting there so i'm asking uh you know kind of through your influence a broader set of questions that aren't so focused on, on des- like major to career, but like where, where are you finding your points of interest? So that may be some other advice that parents can, can take with them into this challenging work about really this uh, moving to the age of personalization for all of us really requires us to break away from paradigms to which we've been hitched for a long time. So <laughs> you got to really with any, you breaking any habit, you've got to really work, you've got to really work at it. So hopefully by listening to this, I'd urge our um, our listeners to go pick up Dark Horse and End of Average. You know, you can begin that process of unwiring your brain a little bit and trying to see uh, uh, forward. So, as you say, what's the inevitable path 
um, toward toward personalization. And I would say just in you know conclusion for parents, like like my bet is this: if you look at the future of our economy, if you look at things like AI and automation and and the changing nature of work, um, it seems inevitable to me that what prepared looks like you know because most parents they just want their kids to be prepared like they want them to be able to live a happy life and it's like you don't want to set them up for failure what prepared looks like moving forward is just very different so when we're sitting here talking about fulfillment i don't think there's any parent that's listening who doesn't actually want that for their kid right but then there's this sort of worm of doubt that's like but wait is it fulfillment versus being prepared and like i am i risking my kid having a stable job my argument is it is the exact opposite that we are leaving this old age where we all grew up in it. We all are used to what it means to be prepared. It doesn't work anymore. Probably the single worst thing you could be coming out of school is like mediocre at a bunch of stuff. And you know, you've been basically uh, passive in your own learning all the time. Like, like most major employers, they want self-directed employees. They want people who, can can be creative and collaborative and they, so this is not just the nice thing to have it's not this is a convergence of things that we deeply want as parents for our kids with what our economy is actually increasingly demanding so that what you don't want to do is have your kid be the last kid through the standardization system right like that is like the worst possible position they could be in so as parents we've got to take the lead right we've got to like play our role in the home right? In, in helping our kids have the right kind of mindset and be prepared to live in this age of personalization. Yeah, it's, it's so immediate in your life with your 18-year-old when, you know, 100-year life and all the other things we know about the fourth industrial revolution, like the, the 20s are really important for this exploratory phase of your of your micromotives and sort of where your passions are, but it is not, you, you should not be uh, sort of pegged into a job where you're feeling, uh, uh, unfulfilled and, and pinned down, uh, you got a long life ahead of you, right? You know, and, <laughs> and jobs, like the thing is, is even if you like the, the truth is, is the job you have won't stay around forever. No. It's just, so kids gotta, they gotta know who they are. They gotta know how to make choices. They gotta know how to adapt. They gotta know how to learn on their own. Yeah. And if you can combine those things for kids, they will be in a position to be able to ride those waves of change yeah. and use it to, to their benefit and to the benefit of society. If not, they're going to get crushed by it. Yeah. Net, net parents at the end have to relax. Like we got it. We've really got to, we've got to get a little less anxious. So yeah. maybe that's the best way to, to, to wrap it up. So we'll look forward to whatever comes next out of populace or your ongoing work uh, up, uh, up North. And I um, uh, can't wait to, can't wait to see where it takes. It's been so provocative and compelling. It's been a real honor to spend some time with you. I appreciate you giving, giving that to us here on the From My Angle podcast. Thanks so much, Todd Rose. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode of the podcast, co-host Amari Hayes will join us with members of the parish community. What is the firsthand take of educators and students in our own parish community around the role technology plays in fostering genuine belonging? It should be a fun and interesting conversation. So until the next time, thanks for joining me on the From My Angle podcast. <laughs>